Welcome to Postscript, the podcast where we teach, chat, and rant about narrative and film. I'm Tori, and I prepare and guide each episode. And I'm David. I have no idea what we're talking about, but I'm ready to share my opinions. This season is about what makes a good or bad act one of a movie. And in this episode, we're only talking about the bad. Real bad. So yeah, this is the episode where we're going to just trash talk terrible act ones. I usually don't read or judge uh, movies according to the, the, the script structure. So I'm curious. But also having major issues with act one in Don't Worry Darling really made me realize something major about that movie. Another thing is that a movie is great only during act one. Mm-hmm. And then it just loses pace or they start introducing things. That's true, yeah. This. <laughs> yeah. I think probably act in a bad movie, act one is as bad as everything else. But it's. I think the reason it seems like act one is okay and then the rest is messing it up is that in it, before act one starts, your mind is the most open to possibility. You know? Mm-hmm. You're like... You're the most like open to anything that the film may be presenting you with, mm-hmm. and then you've got that set, so that's your baseline, mm-hmm. and then sort of the rest of the movie fucks up what you set up as the baseline. Mm-hmm. You know. Okay, so yeah, bad act ones. Bad act ones. So, I want to compare the voiceover sequence from The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring. With the voiceover sequence from the beginning of The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. Mm-hmm. You've seen all the Lord of the Rings, but you haven't seen any of The Hobbit. Yeah, right? and I'm not planning to watch. You shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> if you couldn't tell. Uh, all right, I picked these two because regardless of how you may feel about Lord of the Rings, I mean, for me, it was a huge part of my adolescence. You're not that into it. For me, it's mostly nostalgia, but I think they're solid. Um, I do think that the fellowship is a solid example of having just a huge burden of information to deliver and doing it in a very artful way. Mm -hmm. Uh, However, everything that's great about the fellowship, they really fucked up in The Hobbit. (laughs) Great. Or what I've sat through of it, which... I watched the first one, I think, and not the others. Also, I actually, I even kind of enjoyed Lord of the Rings when I, when I saw it in the theater. It's not that I hated Lord of the Rings. Just knowing that that's the best, as good as fantasy gets, (laughs) I just gave up on the genre. Like, okay, if that's the best case scenario for a fantasy movie, that... I'm not interested in any other fantasy films. I think it's fair to say it probably is the best. So, right? Yeah. If you don't like Lord of the Rings, then don't waste your time watching other fantasy movies. Well, some people wouldn't consider Lord of the Rings that... Or they might have a problem with Lord of the Rings because it's very, very serious. Like, it's very self-serious. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's it's one of the problems, but... But it's not like you don't like Lord of the Rings because you prefer Harry Potter. No. <laughs> no. No, 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 Like, of the two, I think you prefer Lord of the Rings. Oh, by far. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> things that I hate. Star Wars franchise, Marvel franchise, Christopher Nolan movies, <laughs> Batman in general, any Batman related, and Lord of the Rings. Oh, and uh, what else? Um, uh, Game of Thrones. Fuck that. And uh, tacos and avocado. Wow. That, I think you just covered 99% of the Earth's population. Like, was... if you removed everyone who likes at least one of those things. <laughs> I'm not saying if you're into those movies, leave my fucking podcast. I'm saying if you have an issue with listening to a person who's not into those things. I don't want you to listen to my voice if you're into any of those things. I mean, you know, some people have such strong feelings towards those franchises that they would feel offended and would not be interested, would not trust my opinion about anything else because I'm not into Harry Potter. So it's probably good. It's good to get that out of the way. Mm -hmm. Just clear the air. Yeah. And the room. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We don't want someone to learn about this later. Yeah, it's helpful information about my character in Act 1 that I'm not into those franchises. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to establish your character. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, I'm going to have you watch the... The Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, and The Hobbit, and Unexpected, whatever, Journey. Uh, we're going to watch the sequence where the one ring is explained. The one ring. And then we're going to watch the sequence where the Arkenstone is explained. It's good I didn't ask. There are multiple rings? <laughs> there are multiple rings, though. You're really? about to learn about that, yeah. Oh, it's in The Hobbit? No, it's in the Lord of the Rings. The Lord of the Rings movies has multiple rings. Well, I thought it's just. It's literally I thought the movies only, are numbered, not the. It's literally only mentioned in the, in the, one minute sequence we're about to watch. Oh, I remember now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it yeah, never yeah. comes up again. Yeah. Okay, it's in the very, very beginning of the first movie. Right. Yeah, yeah. There were so many, like you know, like we're yeah, gonna just watch so it many now. wedding bands, and then yeah, <laughs> I get it now. It is like a wedding band. It's yeah, like it's a really cool wedding band. It's, like it's just en- a little too thick for my taste. It's like but... an engagement ring from Sauron. <laughs> it began with the forging of the great rings. Three were given to the elves, immortal, wisest, and fairest of all beings. Seven to the dwarf lords, great miners and craftsmen of the mountain halls. And nine, nine rings were gifted to the race of men who, above all else, desire power. For within these rings was bound the strength and will to govern each race. But they were all of them deceived, for another ring was made. In the land of Mordor, in the fires of Mount Doom, the Dark Lord Sauron forged in secret a master ring to control all others. And into this ring, he poured his cruelty, his malice, and his will to dominate all life. One ring to rule them all. Wow, this is fascinating. Okay. Indulge me. 
<laughs> Any thoughts? My thoughts are, I appreciate how quickly it just explained the situation. There was no bullshit, just the appropriate amount of information. Like, hey, you're watching this fantasy. And it's also a very good setup that, you know, like if they're good looking, they're good. If they look creepy, <laughs> they're bad. Yeah, they established that early on. Yeah. Ugly, bad. Ugly. Hot, good. Exactly. Just for comparison, The Lord of the Rings is three giant books, and then I think multiple other, like, appendic- appendices, whatever the, that's called, extra books and, you know, the language and all that stuff. Don't, hob- don't ask me. You have a degree in this. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah, my, I have a bachelor's in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, the Hobbit is one smaller children's book, basically. Mm-hmm. But they made The Lord of the Rings into three movies, and they made The Hobbit into three movies. <laughs> Which combined, I believe, is much longer in The Hobbit. Mm-hmm. So. <clears throat> anyway. <laughs> in the... F- Yeah, the yeah. fellowship has a lot to. I would trust Peter Jackson with so many things, but not with editing. Yes, yeah, which unfortunately, I guess they gave him the more rights to do that on his own oh, with yeah. the Hobbit. Yeah, none of his early slasher movies were three hours long, right? <laughs> I don't think so. I'm also saying this is someone who watched all three extended editions of Lord of the Rings with commentary many times. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, yeah, they... Just to elaborate on what you were saying, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of information to give with Lord of the Rings. Okay, so that's going to be the point of the comparison, what I noticed instantly. Like, hey, it just summed up everything so quickly and created a very solid foundation for like, oh, it's going to be that type of movie... about these type of creatures yeah and the information that you got is important Mm -hmm. anyway i'll come back to it all right let's let's see there was the city of dale its markets known far and wide full of the bounties of vine and vale peaceful and prosperous for this city lay before the doors of the greatest kingdom in middle earth erebor Stronghold of Thrall, king under the mountain, mightiest of the dwarf lords. Thrall ruled with utter surety, never doubting his house would endure, for his line lay secure in the lives of his son and grandson. Ah, Frodo, Erebor. Built deep within the mountain itself, the beauty of this fortress city was legend. Its wealth lay in the earth, in precious gems hewn from rock, and in great seams of gold, running like rivers through stone. The skill of the dwarves was unequaled, fashioning objects of great beauty out of diamond, emerald, ruby, and sapphire. Ever they delved deeper down into the dark, and that is where they found it, the heart of the mountain. The Arkenstone. Yeah, so it's interesting because 
it felt a lot more challenging to want to, to sit through, even <laughs> though it was approximately the same amount of time. It might have been longer, but I specifically chose it because I think you're getting about the same amount of information that's actually relevant. Yeah. But yeah, it was just so, it, it was full of fillers. It was full of pathos already. Like, we don't even know the story, but it's already like, uh, yeah. uh, like, <laughs> come on, like, give me some content first and then you can, <laughs> you know, start playing those strings, but not before you give me anything and, you, and I'm already like supposed to feel like this is so fucking epic. No, mm-hmm. no. So far, it's just the beginning of a shitty movie and you just keep talking and I don't know what you're trying to tell me. And actually, it's not clear. So they found the heart of the mountain. I don't know either. Like, <laughs> yeah. all that, and I don't really know. I get the ring thing. <laughs> yeah. I still only understand the ring thing. And there's something about a heart of the mountain. And somebody already gave a shout out to Frodo. But I don't know who the fuck is talking to me. I mean, I assume this oh, is Oh, like... that was explained. That part was explained already. This is not the very beginning of the movie. Oh, okay. Um, but, but it is the voiceover sequence. They have a whole thing at the beginning that's even worse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but also visually speaking, it's so funny because it already looks more dated than Lord of the Rings. Because, because of the insane amount of cgi there that mm-hmm. and uh and yeah that's funny it looks older it looks older no, it looks older actually i haven't watched the beginning of lord of the rings in a very very long time and i was thinking like hmm, is this remastered or something but i assume that just the way it looked <laughs> i think it looks but great. this looks significantly shittier than lord of the rings <laughs> and also just yeah like there's these like epic shot after epic shot after epic shot after epic shot and it's just like there's so much perspective and mountains and cities and architecture and there's you know like everything is deep and like you know like endless you know like giant mountains and and deepest caves and water and like I should have known you were going to, like, rock the shit-talking episode, because you're already saying so much better than I was going to say. But yeah, so yeah, it's 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 visually, visually just as, like, fluffed up bullshit filler as the voiceover compared to the original Lord of the Rings movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> I thought it was I thought it was obvious enough just by watching them and I was right. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, like even with the camera camera movements, there's not a single stationary shot. There's not a single right composition with people in there with just like these rotating cameras above beautiful landscapes and uh, and cities and yeah. Yeah. It's like if everything is breathtaking, then nothing is breathtaking. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah. yeah. What are you going to amaze me with if we start with like <laughs> eight epic shots about unrealistic architecture back to back? 
like the highlight of the movie must be a boring white room, and and you're just like, oh, this is so pleasant. <laughs> oh, we take a break. Hmm, I like this. A chair, a table, two people talking. This is awesome. <laughs> So yeah, that was that was very interesting. Cool. But also, it feels like it feels like it was not, di- and it's both directed by Peter Jackson. Yeah. What happened? <laughs> the power, the the power of the ring, <laughs> corrupted him. Yeah. Yeah. So the the fellowship is very economical in its explanation. I love how it says like. X went to the elves, comma, blank, and blank. Like, you know, it doesn't say, like, X went to the dwarves. Dwarves are, you know, like, we don't need to do this in complete sentences. You know, we don't need to actually explain what each thing is. You can, I mean, the important thing, I think, is that uh, it's okay to leave stuff out Mm -hmm. and get to it later. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important lesson for Act 1 in general. Yeah, like they say the dwarfs and you see these, yeah. you know, stocky little dudes with long beards. Like, oh, I guess they're the dwarves. Yeah, right. Not like the dwarves are this. Yeah. They like this. They do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The Hobbit's totally the opposite. It says everything in complete sentences. It repeats itself a lot. They use phrases that we don't even know. Like that Erebor is filled with vine and veil. Like, what even is that? I was going to ask you. I don't know what vine and veil is. Yeah. What's What good is that? Yeah, that's not information. That's just, that's just empty pathos. Yeah, it's just flowery, like, old-timey language, which there's plenty of. You don't need to throw in extra that is meaningless. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> this movie is going to be... Full of Full. that. There's, we're a habit of three hours of that, and we just started it. Yeah, like there's no reason to add more of that, especially when they don't support anything. Also, it tells us everything. It does not like you don't need to do that. Um, like in the fellowship, like I was saying, they leave a lot that's unexplained. Like we get the main info. We'll get to the details later. You know, like the, like, (laughs) I think this is what's important. The Lord of the Rings gives you all the meaning and none of the details. The Hobbit gives you all the details, but none of the meaning. Mm -hmm. But I was going to say, like, could you say what information you got from, not as a test, but just, just as an experiment. I can confidently tell you that if I never seen lord of the rings before no, no, no. i could tell that it's gonna be about the ring that some crazy magician dude created to control those other rings and that's the one ring that controls all of them and that one ring is evil while the other rings are just you know uh they're just uh symbols of power mm-hmm. okay uh yeah, can you explain what you've learned from The Hobbit? <laughs> I've learned that I should never watch it. <laughs> but I already kind of knew it. So, I mean, the other thing is that, you know, Lord of Drinks was also a good introduction to the whole universe as well. Yeah. Like, 
oh yeah, there are these different creatures, some reason called races, which means they are. And they act differently which, by the, birth. That's how race works. Yeah, that's how race works. <laughs> and also, so it means they're different races, but the same species. So like dwarfs and humans and and uh, and elves could have children together. Yes, because that's are how... they just humans? They're just like that's how Aragorn. He's half. Oh yeah, Aragorn is half. like a half half what? What? He's like a. He's half elf and half half hu- human. Human. Okay. 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 So they're just people. They're just weird looking people. Wow, I never realized how fucking racist Lord of the Rings is. <laughs> like, wow. You never realized how racist Lord of the Rings is? No, I realized how racist <laughs> it is on a on a way more superficial level, but I never I never paid attention that they call these different creatures races. Yeah. Well, and yeah, how they do. their race just you know, determinates their personality and their and their morals and you can easily pretend that it's different cultures that they're referring to and not the races themselves but it is the races themselves i I, I think it's a stretch but you can i mean it's not i'll say it's not integral to the plot that the races are different like you could see them as cultural Mm -hmm. and it would still work it doesn't matter yeah it's not like i don't think I can't think of an example where, like, someone is born and then what they become is determined by their race as opposed to the culture they're born into. Can we just somehow get it canceled? <laughs> this racist garbage? Yeah, but I think that the, 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 the difference, yeah, actually, you said it really well, which you said it better than me, like, the whole, like everything is so captivating and breathtaking and amazing, you know, like that's boring. That sucks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was bored already. Yeah. No, I know. It's super boring. Whereas in the fellowship, the voiceover is like, it's about like alliances and power and like intrigue and like a dark secret evil Mm -hmm. that's like growing. Like that's interesting. You know, Mm -hmm. you're like, oh yeah. Like tell me about that. You know? Yeah, it's more like Lord of the Rings' intro was more like telling me necessary information to follow the story. The Hobbit's intro is telling me how fucking epic this movie is going (laughs) to be. How awesome everything is. I thought you guys already made a trailer. I really don't... Like, I saw the trailer. (laughs) I'm I'm in the cinema. Don't try to convince me how epic this movie is going to be. Yeah, it's basically saying, like, like, all you get out of that is, like... A bunch of greedy assholes found a shiny rock. (laughs) And you're like, why does this matter to me? Yeah. Why the other one you're like, oh yeah, like power, power struggle and like secret power. And like, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Like what's going to happen now? Mm -hmm. Conflict. Yeah. Conflict. I mean, what happens next in The Hobbit is like the dragon attacks them. But like... It's still like... Why didn't they start there? The dragon I know. No, that's them. exactly it. They could have just started there. It would have been fine. Yeah, no, this is a good example of why, like, world building alone doesn't justify the voiceover. You know, like in Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. Like, 
a lot of the reason voiceover can be appealing is because of, be of it working like set decoration. But I'm sure, and like, there's probably a lot of people for whom, like, just the fact that there are, like, dwarves doing dwarf shit on the screen and a hobbit is speaking is, like, enough mm -hmm. for them. And they're just like, yeah, give me more. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> you know, yeah, to be fair, it sets a mood just like voiceover in Goodfellas. But it kind of reminds me of, like, the, the, like, Phantom Menace problem or, like, just the, you know, that trilogy problem. Mm -hmm. uh, what was, which problem? Look, the Star Wars. No, but which problem? Like, oh, which it reminds problem? you of the problem. No, just like. It reminds you of Jar Jar Binks or like no, which problem just, we're talking just, about? Okay. There, there are dozens of right, problems fine. there. It reminds me of the problem in. What do we call that trilogy? Whatever. Episode one through three of yeah. Star mm -hmm. Wars. Mm -hmm. uh, where just like the idea of just having like more. The prequel trilogy. The prequels. Uh, that just having more like Star Warsy looking shit on the screen would just make things better, <laughs> <laughs> even while your audience isn't invested emotionally in anything that's happening. Mm -hmm. Like it's the emotional, it's the meaning. That's what's important, mm -hmm. not just more cool shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but the the whole intro with old. Bilbo is like such fan service. They just wanted to be able to put that Elijah Wood and Ian McKellen and Ian Homer in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's rough. Okay, so uh, I told you that the next movie that we were going to talk about is a bad remake of something. Did you have a guess as to what that was? My guess would be Rebecca. You're right. Right? Oh, wow. I didn't think you were going to get it because we watched that so long ago. Yeah, but we didn't watch a lot of remakes. I guess that's true. Um, let me just go through real quick what Rebecca is mm -hmm. and who directed these two re this mm -hmm. these two versions yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rebecca is a British book from the 30s. It's about a young working class woman. And I asked you to give me a name the other day and you said Marsha. So that's what we're going to call her because she's the narrator and they she never is given a name in the book. Or the movie. So, her name is Marsha, for our purposes. She falls in love, Marsha falls in love with, uh, and marries this, like, super high-class wealthy dude named Maxim de Winter, and moves with him to his beautiful mansion by the sea called Manderley. And uh, while she adjusts to her new super bougie upper-class life, she's constantly reminded of Maxim's previous wife, Rebecca, who died. And then as the book goes on, details about Rebecca's life and death keep getting revealed and she becomes more and more mysterious and threatening to Marcia. And Marcia becomes convinced that Maxim still loves Rebecca and that she can never be good enough for him. So there's this classic film adaptation of the book from 1940 directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And so when I heard that there was going to be this remake in 2020, I was really excited because the director is Ben Wheatley, who did A Field in England, High Rise, and Free Fire. Um, I mean, his... I don't know how... He, have you seen all of those? i only seen Field in England. Oh, okay. He's definitely not for everyone, but I think, you know, there's always something kind of interesting to like, and he's pretty versatile, and I think you can definitely say 
from Field in England, which I, that's probably my favorite of the three anyway, mm-hmm. um, which I would definitely recommend to people who like creepy, weird, surreal types of psychedelic. Trippy. The word trippy. you're looking for is trippy. Trippy is a very good word for it. Uh, and uh, Rebecca is basically about a woman being driven insane by the memory of a dead person in like a big creepy mansion. So it's kind of perfect for like creepy, surreal, trippy weirdness. I yeah. mean, it could have been really awesome. And he could yeah. have approached it from a very different, much more psychedelic angle. Yeah. And nobody would compare it to Hitchcock because it's a very right. different language of filmmaking. But I don't remember what was problematic with Act One. Well, you're about to find out. After the commercial break. (laughs) Do you have neck pain? (laughs) And just a note to the listeners, if you want to follow along with either of these movies, the Hitchcock version is available for free on YouTube. I think it's just public domain at this point. And the Wheatley version is on Netflix and both act ones end around minute 27. Hmm. So both movies start with a voiceover from Marsha, which I'll skip since it's not very important for our purposes. Uh, And then after that, both movies open in Monte Carlo in the south of France, where Marsha is working for this really annoying rich lady as a lady's companion, which is basically like a friend for hire. So she's traveling around with this rich lady being paid to hang out with her and also to do like some secretarial work. And the annoying rich lady, whose name is Mrs. Van Hopper, is like a busybody and a socialite, or like a wannabe socialite, and clearly traveling mostly to be like seen around wealthy, important people. So we're going to compare the same scene from both movies, starting with Hitchcock. There's a short extra scene in the Hitchcock movie that is right after the voiceover. Basically, you just need to know that Like, Marsha witnesses Maxim trying to commit suicide by jumping off a cliff, and she, like, yells and stops him, and he kind of plays it off like she's overreacting. So she's, when she sees him again, she's embarrassed, but that scene is so short, and they they don't actually, like, really talk to each other or meet. So uh, this is the scene where they really meet for the first time and talk for the first time. So in this scene, Marsha and Mrs. Van Hopper are hanging out in the lobby of the ritzy hotel where they're staying, and Mrs. Van Hopper spots Maxim de Winter and tries to kind of buddy up to him because he is super fancy and important. So this is basically when the two romantic leads officially meet. Uh, I'm not going to play the entire clip for the listeners. I'll just add some clips into our conversation about it. Okay, so let's watch the Hitchcock version now. How do you do? I mean, what I, 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 I was mostly... P- paying attention to Marcia and mm-hmm. she feels very anxious and incredibly uncomfortable and she didn't she doesn't talk and she doesn't know shit. Do you empathize with her at all? I empathize with her because she seems very anxious and me as an anxious person I instantly feel empathy towards people experiencing anxiety in public. So yeah, sure, I felt empathy for her. What? is the world that they're in, what is the uh, the kind of environment that they're in, and does she fit in there? Oh, she doesn't fit in there. No, okay. she seems like an outsider, <laughs> and yeah, like she seems like a completely different class, and the whole situation felt incredibly classist. 
directly nobody's mentioning like different ranks in mm -hmm. society, but it's quite obvious that she doesn't belong there. What do you think about Maxim? He's kind of holding back his emotions. Like we don't know a lot about him. He seems pretty, you know, reserved. No, I'm afraid that sort of thing ceased to amuse me years ago. Why do you think he sat down there and joined them? I think he sat down there because he's interested in Marsha. What do you think he likes about her? Probably the fact that she's an outsider. The, the fact that she's not from there and that's instantly like, you know, like she seems by just not saying anything, she seems so much more interesting next to this really chatty lady who seems like a very typical character of this environment. He sat down because finally an interesting character who he could discover and get to know. Exactly what you said. She's shy, quiet, awkward, um, but in a way that's kind of sweet or it's supposed to be sweet. I realize that this actress, Joan Fontaine, she's like a little too adorable at times. It's like kind of annoying, but and she does have some awesome like eyebrow acting. That, so I really <laughs> like that. <laughs> um, she, but yeah, she doesn't belong there. Uh, when he asks her, you know, she doesn't say much during the conversation, but when he asks her what she thinks of Monte Carlo. What do you think of Monte Carlo? Or don't you think of it at all? Because he's clearly trying to, like, talk to her and mm -hmm. not. Uh, she says, Oh, well, well, I think it's rather artificial. So from that, we and Maxim know that, as you said, she's not a socialite. She's more down to earth and real. Um... And then, yeah, what we know about Maxim, like, he's kind of a dick. He travels fastest who travels alone. Perhaps you've not heard of it. Good night. But only really to Mrs. Van Hopper. Do you suppose that sudden departure was intended to be funny? Um, I mean, he makes a few remarks. He's mm -hmm. very smooth. Seems like, you know, part of that, you know, any superficial high-class conversation in an environment like that. Well, he's very good at playing the part, playing it off, but ultimately he's telling Mrs. Van Hopper that he's not interested in having any of these conversations. Like mm -hmm. you said, he's kind of mysterious. Mm -hmm. um, he's kind of like, no bullshit. Mm -hmm. um, he's like kind of a loner. And yeah, you get the sense he doesn't really fit into this elite world either. Mm -hmm. Or he doesn't... He, As you said, he appreciates... Something it different. It feels like he's, yeah, like it feels like he's a little above it. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. he's part of it, but he's not buying it. Right, exactly. As he said, like he admires these qualities about her. He's noticing these things in her. Um, in return, she just seems mostly really embarrassed and mortified about, because they had that weird interaction on the cliff before. And, uh, you know, we, she probably has no idea that he's interested in her at this point. And, uh you know, probably just thinks he's being very kind by pretending it didn't happen. So now we're going to watch the same scene in Wheatley's version. In Wheatley's, Mrs. Van Hopper has asked Marcia to bribe the maitre d', is that how you say that? At the hotel restaurant uh, to seat Maxim with her. So we're going to watch the scene from Wheatley's version now. <laughs> Never! To me, the main difference is that this one is trying to deliver essentially the same message about the characters is just so much more in your face and so much more didactic you know instead of showing her feeling anxious or like having smaller signs of anxiety she's making this whole 
scene of like dropping the coins and not understanding what's going on. I've got more. And also, uh, the lady just makes this very obvious, you know, uh, statement like, oh, she's staff. We're not related. She's staff. Not as subtle. It's, it's not as subtle and, you know, this type of filmmaking or this type of storytelling just like makes me feel like, you know, like they, the creators are, the creators look down on their audience. Like they treat them like they're too dumb to understand subtle messages. So they push everything in your face. Is it clear how she feels about that environment? I mean, it, no, I, I, I see what you're saying because, you know, like I just mentioned that I have the problem with the in your face message, but also it's not as obvious how she feels actually. Let me point out one little detail. She's drawing a fancy lady and then the fancy lady orders something in French. And then she practices her French under her breath. And to me, this says the opposite of what we know about the other character from the Hitchcock movie. Mm -hmm. That she is like admiring and wants to be part of that environment mm -hmm. because she's like imitating this woman. She's sketching her. There's just a lot of mixed messages mm -hmm. that I'm receiving. Whereas in the Hitchcock movie, it's super clear. Mm -hmm. How does Maxim feel about her at this point? Oh, I have no clue. I just think he doesn't like her. Or at least it's not obvious that he does. It's, no, uh, yeah, I, I, I would say it's not obvious what he thinks at all. So yeah, it could be he doesn't like her. It also could be he's interested. Fuck knows. So... While she's struggling with the bribe, if a Mr. De Winter could sit with her, Maxim kind of fucks with her and embarrasses her. Don't do it. I've heard he's a terrible bull. So, like, I guess what we could conclude about him is that he's kind of like sick of people sucking up to him, and he like kind of enjoys like fucking with those people. Um, but then a few minutes later, when he learns that she's an employee, you would expect him to, like feel bad that he fucked with her but instead he just looks annoyed at her if he's like a decent person who admires that she's like working class and not like the rest of the people around them he would feel bad about it like the other Marsha she's yeah like clumsy awkward and insecure uh but I'm also getting this vibe that she yeah, like, seems like she's insecure about being poor. In the next scene, which it's like a montage kind of thing, so I won't show you, but... Um, and this is only in Wheatley's version. We learn that Marsha, when she goes upstairs, when, you know, at the end of the scene, she sends her away, she goes upstairs, she covers herself in cheap perfume, and then comes back downstairs to impress him. All that she knows about him so far is that he's rich handsome, high class, and kind of a dick. And she's really into him and trying to impress him. In both movies, Mrs. Van Hopper continues to ridicule and abuse Marcia. She passively mentions that Maxim had a wife named Rebecca who he adored and who is dead. So in the next scene, which is the next scene we're going to watch, Marcia and Maxim have their first conversation alone together, and that's when they really start to get to know each other. So, 
Uh, we'll start with the Hitchcock version again. In Hitchcock's version, Marsha is sitting down for breakfast at the hotel restaurant and she spills a vase that's on the table. Maxim sees her and uses this as his chance to invite her to join him for breakfast. She orders some scrambled eggs because this Marsha is comfortable with her peasant status and isn't trying to be fancy. Uh, so I think I'm going to play this whole clip from both movies for the listeners uh, because it's only about two minutes long. What's happened to your friend? Oh, she's ill in bed with a cold. I'm sorry I was so rude to you yesterday. The only excuse I can offer is that I've become boorish through living alone. You weren't really. You simply wanted to be alone and... <laughs> Tell me, is Mrs. Van Hopper a friend of yours or just a relation? No, she's my employer. I'm what is known as a paid companion. I didn't know companionship could be bought. I looked up the word companion in the dictionary once. It said, a friend of the bosom. <laughs> <laughs> I don't envy you the privilege. Well, she's very kind, really, and I have to earn my living. Haven't you any family? No, my, my mother died years and years ago, and then there was only my father, and, and he died last summer. And then I took this job. How rotten for you. Yes, it was rather, because, you see, we got on so well together. You and your father? Yes, he, he was a lovely person, very unusual. What was he? A painter. Ah, was he a good one? Well, I thought so, but people didn't understand him. Yes, that's often the trouble. He, he painted trees. It, at least it was one tree. You mean he painted the same tree over and over again? Yes, you see, he had a theory that if you should find one perfect thing or, or place or person, you should stick to it. Do you think that's very silly? Not at all. I'm a firm believer in that myself. And what did you find to do with yourself while he was painting his tree? Well, I sat with him and I sketched a little. I, I don't do it very well, though. Oh, you're going sketching this afternoon? Yes. Where? Oh, I haven't made up my mind. I'll drive you somewhere in the car. Oh, no, please, I didn't mean... Oh, nonsense. Finish up that mess and we'll get along. Thank you. It's very kind of you, but I'm not very hungry. Oh, come on. Eat it up like a good girl. We learn that her parents died. And uh, so she's, like, been through some hardship, but she's kind of making the best of it. Um, she kind of recalls her dad's little idiosyncrasies. Um, with like some fondness and she says she likes to sketch so you know again she's like she's down to earth she's in touch with reality she's genuine she's sensitive she's artistic uh unlike everyone else around them who's fake privileged probably never experienced any hardship also one thing i noticed that it really feels like a first date this scene yeah and they had they're cute right they've got yeah, some chemistry yeah, yeah exactly uh, and then, yeah, again, like, Maxim seems to really like these things about her. He apologizes for being rude. He asks her a lot of questions about herself. He does call her a good girl, but, you know, maybe she's into that. Mm -hmm. and, <laughs> and, then, and then he invites her out with him. Mm -hmm. I mean, I understand after watching this scene, I understand why they're, I understand that they're attracted to each other and I understand what they find attractive about each other exactly um and i assume that's not going to be the case with the remake <laughs> okay so uh i'll start the wheatley version in just a minute but um just to set the scene again um it also takes place at the hotel restaurant at breakfast but in wheatley's version the waiters won't let marcia sit on the terrace where the fancy people are so she gets really offended and starts to have a little hissy fit 
So seeing this, Maxim invites her to join him for breakfast. He specifically states that he's only inviting her for breakfast because he is tired of the, the newspaper he's been reading. So what does it you do for... I'm what's called a, la a lady's companion. Well, if a lady has to pay for company, that says something about the lady, doesn't it? <laughs> May I take your order? Des wit. Undersen. For breakfast? You heard her. Et encore du café. Bien, Monsieur de Winter. Mademoiselle. If it's not rude, why her? Seems like you would make an excellent companion to any number of people. Well, I've always wanted to travel, so there's that, and 90 pounds a year. I know that doesn't seem very much to you, but it's a lot to me. I suppose you can set a price on loneliness. It's odd, isn't it? Some people seem perfectly happy alone, while others just need someone to pass the time with. Doesn't matter who. Which are you? Um, my parents are dead, so... I'm used to being alone. Ah, here comes your breakfast. Et voilà, une douzaine d'huîtres. Well, I've always wanted to try them, so... <laughs> Go on and try them before they get warm. I don't think I've ever spoken so much in my entire life. No, it was very impressive. <laughs> and I'm sorry about the oysters, too. I... No, 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 that was fine. <laughs> Listen, thank you very much. I, I haven't enjoyed myself like that for quite a long time. A bientôt. Okay, so, yeah, we, we hear her repeating the French sentence. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, that's part of the character. I think it's just similar to, to the previous scene. It's uh, trying to communicate essentially the same message as the Hitchcock movie by using way more in-your-face scenarios mm -hmm. with this whole ordering thing and then the, the waiter makes a face and then they jump forward and everybody's left and they're still on the patio, therefore they're having a great conversation. Like, it's just, the whole thing is just so much cheaper and so much more direct and also because it's using all of these different elements of storytelling it's actually like trying to say more about the characters and it manages to say way less than the hitchcock version and also they stay on the patio while the staff looks very obviously and you know another example of very subtle filmmaking yeah that the that waiters making points to his watch the, yeah points to his watch <laughs> and they're making a face and the patio yeah. is empty and it's only two of them because everybody already finished breakfast mm -hmm. but also yeah. that's such a dick move with yeah know, true good point if i worked in the service industry i would already hate both of these characters and when uh when he asks her why she puts up with Mrs. Van Hopper's abuse. She says it's because she likes to travel. I guess that kind of justifies maybe the French thing or like why she orders oysters because she likes new experiences or whatever. But then she also says that she does, does it for the money. So that's mixed messages again. That's And that's that's not seeking out for new experiences. That's faking your class. And then there's another exchange that I just was think is really bizarre. She says, uh, she says, some people seem happy alone and others just need someone to pass the time with. <laughs> I mean, like, 
<laughs> I was like, okay, so are you saying that their relationship is the second category, like a completely shallow relationship? And then he says, which are you? And she says, well, my parents are dead. <laughs> so it, it feels very like they were trying to shoehorn that information in there, mm-hmm. but it just comes off sounding very melodramatic. And then, yeah, the waiter, we see the waiter look at his watch and uh, that which tells us it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. And then we see them from a distance, like laughing and talking, but we can't hear what they're saying. Because I guess the writers just like didn't know how to make them like each other at this point. So they were like, then we'll just cut to a distant shot and they're laughing and talking mm-hmm. and we'll understand that they're having a great time. Yeah, yeah. And then they leave and they just verbally state that they had a great time and talked for a long yeah, time. Yeah, it's just the whole thing is just <laughs> lazy. Which, although nothing we've seen should indicate that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's so frustrating because it's messing up the things that Hitchcock was so good at and mm-hmm. he's messing up the things that are actually timeless. Mm-hmm. Like those, those, yeah. uh, tools of filmmaking or those tricks Mm -hmm. that Hitchcock used for character development, those are the exact part of that movie that are still not dated. Mm -hmm. The thing is in black and white. The sound is crap. Maybe the pace is a little slower than it should be. But the character development and the chemistry between between the people and understanding their motivation, that's not dated. That's just well made. Yeah. And it's not just cheaper and more cliche and lazier and looks down on the audience, but it doesn't even work because it's all over the place. Yeah. Okay, so I'm not going to show any more specific scenes, but um, I'll just explain what happens in the rest of it. So um, in both versions, they continue to see each other secretly. Uh, When Mrs. Van Hopper urgently decides to leave Monte Carlo, Maxim asks Marcia to marry him instead of going with her, and she accepts. Her decision to accept, as we've discussed in the previous episodes, is the decision that ends Act 1, and that propels us into the rest of the movie. Uh, I just want to point out a few more differences between the Hitchcock version and the Wheatley version. In both versions, marrying Maxim means returning with him to his mansion by the sea, Manderley. And living there as the lady of the house. In Hitchcock's version, Marcia has like sort of an initial refusal of the call. I don't belong in your sort of world for, for one thing. Well, what is my sort of world? Oh, well, mandolin, you know what I mean. Um, she doesn't think she's high class enough. But otherwise, she thinks Manderley is beautiful, so she's like generally excited about going. Mm-hmm. In Wheatley's version, Marcia makes a point to say that she's sick of being a bookworm and she wants to travel the world and be adventurous. Everything I know is from books. I haven't really experienced anything yet. I plan to before I'm old. Maxim, on the other hand, is clearly not adventurous. Uh, He has to be begged to go swimming in one of the scenes. Um, He has lots of money, but he never says anything about traveling. All he wants to do is go back to his mansion and they like even include this detail, which is not in the Hitchcock version, that he wants an heir. Uh, so, like, I'm like, why is that not an issue for her? Yeah, why is she? So why? Yeah, why? <laughs> why is she? Yeah, why? Why is she feel connected to this guy? I don't know. I don't think they were trying to portray 
her being a gold digger, but that's what they ended up with. <laughs> it's kind of true, yeah. Yeah, like if she marries him, she's just going to go spend the rest of her life locked in a mansion making babies for him. Mm-hmm. But she's not even going to get to travel, mm-hmm. it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. She's not okay with who she is, and she's trying to fake a different personality. Right. And also, she wants to, she's trying to, to date a person who's clearly too boring for her. But since he's loaded, she's going to stay with him anyway. He literally says, You said you wanted to see the world. Manderley is the best part of it. You wanted to see the world. Manderley is the best part of it. That's like saying, oh, you want to see the world? Well, my house is in the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, that's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do want to try to tie it into the meaning that we talked about in the first episode. Because, you know, like we talked about this with like, uh, it could be something as simple as like good versus evil we talked about like Jurassic Park and how it was like uh, hubris and, you know, uh, mastering nature versus the natural order of things. So I think in Rebecca, it's kind of this idea of be yourself. You're good enough exactly the way you are. You know, you're worthy of love. The The people who love you, love you for who you truly are. So I think, I think that's, really what we're identifying with when we watch this movie and that's like the meaning that's created as opposed to like the feeling that you have to prove yourself that you're like not good enough um that you have to change yourself in order to be accepted and then i think there's a second sort of opposing worldview thing at play which is um the idea that like she knows that he has this ex-wife who died And she herself, uh, her parents have died. Mm -hmm. And so I think that she feels like, or like one of, one, you know, the, the, the views that are opposing here are on the one hand, like the idea that like the past is in the past, like life is going to go on. You can start again. You have like a chance at happiness in the future and you can like let go of the things that happened before versus like the idea that the past is never going to leave you and you know, things will stay in your memory forever and they'll control you. And like the kind of the idea of like grief, like you don't deserve happiness after a loved one has died, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of guilt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that in the Hitchcock movie, we see her, Marsha, be, uh, you know, she's being herself and she's being genuine and she does feel concerned that she's not going to fit in, but it's not because she's worried that she's not good enough. She's worried that just realistically she she's not going to fit into that world. But, you know, I think that she starts from a place where she feels, even though she's like navigating the world and it's challenging and, and she feels awkward a lot and she feels clumsy, she does like feel some kind of self-assurance like in who she is. And, uh, you know, so that later in the movie when she, we see her, like the the main conflict starts to arise that conflict is that she is going to start to change herself like that's mm-hmm. a conflict for us because we feel invested in the idea that like you shouldn't have to change who you are mm-hmm. whereas in Wheatley's version we already see her compromising who she is early on so she doesn't really have anything to lose you can't 
already fuck with those stakes early in the movie. You can show signs that there's fragility there, but I don't think that you should. We have to have, like, something to lose. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I understand because, yeah, in the Hitchcock version, it's what's at risk is Marsha's identity. And in the remake, she already lost it. Yeah. Or she's already, like, showing signs of, like, willing to give it up. Right. From the very beginning. Right. So when she does it, it's confusing if Mm -hmm. it's... If this is the the crisis of the movie, yeah, or if it's a success because she seemed to be interested in like, changing <laughs> her changing her identity already, mm-hmm. so when she does it, like, well, yeah, that's what she wanted, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's not like, oh no, it's like, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like. Well, well, yeah, like, we, we kind of knew she was going to do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I kind of wanted to point that out, too, because it's not that in these movies, like, it's not about uh, identifying with the character in the sense of, like, oh, I've been in that exact situation, or I really like her. I think that's why the, the what I'm calling the worldview, like, sort of the over arching ideology Mm -hmm. of the movie that's really like most of the time what gets us invested in it Mm -hmm. you know it's not just like an individual person but it's like a way of seeing the world yeah 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 you know we just automatically identify and invest in that idea Mm -hmm. of like wanting her to succeed i love you most dreadfully i've been crying all morning because i thought i'd never see you again Bless you for that. Oh, and also in Wheatley's version, there's a hot sex scene. Mm. So. Is it hot? No. I don't remember. It's Well, it's not hot, especially since we don't think these characters like each other and we hate them <laughs> both. So, unless you're into that, then. It's a very, very specific kink. That, you know, like, I'm really <laughs> into people who are not attracted to each other having sex. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's my thing. <laughs> I'm really into watching. Well, I guess that's most porn. That kind of sums it up nicely. This is like a porn version of <laughs> of Rebecca. <laughs> they made a porn remake. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Postscript. The music for this episode was created by my brother, Graham. If you want to reach any of us, you can email postscriptcast at gmail.com. I'm David, the boyfriend. Ha <laughs> ha